you have your Bibles, turn with us to the book of Jonah, the book of Jonah in chapter number three. We are coming down towards the, uh, nearing the end of Jonah. We'll finish up chapter three and that'll leave us just one chapter left. It is a short book, but I pray that the Lord has opened your eyes through the study of his word. Jonah chapter three, if you were able to stand with us this morning, uh, stand with us for the reading of God's word. Jonah chapter three, and we'll begin reading down in verse number six. The Bible says, for the word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, let neither man nor beast herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. And God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you might be with us for these next few moments that we have together. Lord, may your Holy Spirit have liberty to move in our hearts and God to give us what we stand in need of. Father, we thank you that you are a God who changes not your faithfulness, Lord, that you displayed to Jonah is the same mercy and grace that you offer and extend to us today. Lord, we thank you so much for that. We ask these things in a name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen. This, you may be seated. This morning, I want to preach on a thought of true repentance. True repentance. Repentance is one of those things that uh, is not necessarily a hot topic among most pulpits and preachers this morning. Yet when we look at Scripture, we find that repentance is an essential part of the doctrine of salvation. And it is important for you and I to understand what repentance is, and then that we understand how we must apply it to our own lives. True repentance is a... Uh, it is a term that uh, requires an a examination of our own heart and a turn from our sin to a righteous God. As we look at this passage of Scripture, I'll uh, read verse number 6 here in just a moment, but I want to look at, first of all, that true repentance requires a surrender of power and authority. In verse number 6, the Bible says that the king, he arose from his throne and he laid off his robe from him. And he covered in, in sackcloth and sat in ashes or dust. He stood up from his throne and instead he sat in dirt. He took off his robe of royalty and instead took on a sackcloth, a garment of poverty. Bruce Larson tells how he helped uh, people struggling to surrender their lives to Christ. He said, for many years, I worked in New York City and 
counseled at my office any number of people who were wrestling with this yes or no decision. Often I would suggest that they walk with me from my office down to the RCA building on Fifth Avenue. In the entrance of that building is a gigantic statue of Atlas, a beautiful proportioned man who with all his muscle straining is holding the world upon his shoulders. There he is, the most powerfully built man in the world, and he can barely stand up under this burden. Now that's one way to live, I would point out to my companion. Trying to carry the world on your shoulders, but now come across the street with me. On the other side of Fifth Avenue is St. Patrick's Cathedral, and there behind the high altar is a little shrine of the boy Jesus, perhaps eight, perhaps eight or nine years old, and with no effort he is holding the world in one hand. And my point was, he said, illustrated graphically. We have a choice. We can carry the world on our shoulders, or we can say, I give up, Lord. Here's my life. I give you my world, the whole world. We find here that the king, after hearing the message of Jonah, that the Nineveh is about to be destroyed, that God is bringing judgment upon them because of their evilness and their wicked ways, they have repented. And the Bible says that the king arose. He arose from his throne and he laid off his robe from him. We find here that, a, that the first aspect of repentance is that we surrender the power and the authority of our life. Before God brought, uh, before God brought uh, justification and forgiveness upon the people of Nineveh, we find here that the king said, I am willing to relinquish the authority, the throne, and give my all to God. See, we like to preach, as uh, Jonathan so eloquently put it this morning in Sunday school, as a society, we love the Jesus of Christmas that brings peace and hope to the world, but the Jesus of Easter is not quite as popular. And truth, that is the case this morning that we all want, or most people would say, yes, I want the God that would grant everlasting life and forgiveness and justification. Yet the God that requires us to relinquish the power and the authority of our life, that God's not quite as popular, is he? And yet we find here in Scripture that that Nineveh, as they're facing certain destruction, the king says, I will arise, I will come off my throne, and I will sit down in ashes. I will take off my, my robe, my garments of royalty, and I will put on uh, the apparel of poverty. And so we find that he rose from the throne to ashes. He says, I will give up the seat of the authority, the, the, the rule of my own life, and I will relinquish it to God. Today, if we are to come to Jesus Christ, if we are to have a relationship with him, then there must be a point and a place in our life where we say, listen, God, I am surrendering my life to you. I am letting go of the reins. Lord, here is my life. You are the ruler, the controller of my life. Come off the throne of our own heart. Yet that is a critical part of salvation. 
I believe that God is willing and able and with open arms. He calls everyone to himself. He said that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all what should come to repentance. God says, listen, I don't want anyone to perish and die and spend an eternity in hell. And God desired so much that we might have hope that he gave his son, his only son, Jesus, to die on the cross that he might pay for our sins. But he said, listen, you must come in repentance. You say, preacher, this morning I believe that Jesus died upon the cross. I'm glad that you believe that. You should believe that. It is true. You say, preacher, I believe that Jesus Christ, he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven. I'm glad that you believe that. And we should believe that. It is true. The Bible tells us so. But guess what this morning? The devil himself also believes that, for he knows it to be true. He, he witnessed You say, preacher, then what is the difference? He is not a saved devil just because he knows that Jesus died on the cross. Uh, yet there is a problem because he would never surrender himself. And you and I, we should believe that Jesus Christ, that he was a son of God. We should believe that he died on the cross for our sins. We should believe that he rose again. But also there must come a place and a point in our time in our own heart where we come to God with repentance, where we remove ourselves from the throne of our own heart and say, God, I surrender my life to you Lord you are the ruler of my life Lord you take my life and do with me as you will repentance not only did he give up his throne but he also he gave up his costly apparel this sackcloth is a often was referred to as a garment made of animal skin very poorly put together. It was for the, the poorest of poor in that society, and it was often used for a display of sorrow. And the king said, I'm going to relinquish my costly garments, the goods that I have obtained, my value. He says, listen, I'm going to put on the lowly, the, the humble, the humility. I'm willing to give up everything that I possess, my power, but also my riches, my wealth, everything that I have obtained. I will give it all up that I might have forgiveness from God. That's what the king said. That's why Jesus said in the New Testament, the New Testament says that it's easier for an animal, or a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not because God will not forgive the rich man of his sins, but rather that most of them will hold on to their wealth more than they will be willing to relinquish their wealth for Christ's sake. There is a surrender of the power and authority over our life. Look at me down in verse number six and seven. Verse number seven says, and he, this is the king, caused it to be proclaimed or he caused them to cry out and to publish to make known in Nineveh by the decree of the king it says and uh, and his nobles saying let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste 
anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. Not only is there a surrender of our power and authority that is required, but also there must be a, uh, there was a solicitation by the king for self-examination. Repentance requires that we surrender ourselves, but it also requires that there is a self-examination of our own hearts and our own lives. The Bible says that he said, uh, uh, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. In, uh, in uh, Psalms, verse 34, verse number 8, the Bible says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. We find that there, this desire for self-examination, it really it calls for th- uh, two things. First off, it requires, and here we find in, in Jonah, or required, but it was uh, asked of them, the king required, that they would fast. The king said, you, uh, we're going to fast. No one will taste of food nor water, not even people or even the beasts, and let them be clothed in sackcloth. Now, I understand they probably didn't go out and cover all of the animals in sackcloth and garments, but he was saying, listen, I want there to be a fast across our entire uh, city, our great city of Nineveh. I want everyone to understand that we are going to uh, uh fast ourselves um, from food or water that we might examine our own lives and show our sincerity to the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 20, 17, 21 says, but this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. And so we find in the New Testament that Jesus Christ teaches fasting. Now, I know fasting is not uh, very familiar to most believers, but you'll find in Scripture that fasting is taught as a, as a tool and as a, uh, an act for Christians to follow as believers, as children of God. And so we find that we are, fasting is a part of it. Fasting says, listen, I am willing to deny myself of what I desire so that I might Instead, seek out God and his will for my life. If you say, preacher, I'm looking for something in my life. I'm needing God to work. I'm needing God to move. Here in Matthew, they were needing God to work in a miraculous way. And they, the, the disciples were trying to, uh, to uh, cast out a demon and they couldn't do it. And Jesus came along and did it. And he said, listen, this time uh, doesn't happen except by prayer and fasting. And so fasting goes hand in hand with prayer. Fasting is saying, listen, I'm going to deny myself of what I want so that I might show my sincerity to God, but not just fasting for the sake of fasting, not denying yourself just for the sake of denying yourself to show your piety to God, but we should replace what we are fasting from with prayer, that we should seek God's face. And so the king said, listen, I want you to fast. I want you to go out and I want you to abstain from food and from water. And part of that is, he said, or taste anything. This taste, as it was read earlier in Psalm 34, 8, the psalmist said, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's almost as if the king was saying, listen, I don't want you, don't want you to taste of any food or water. 
I don't want you to eat anything. I don't want you to drink anything. I want you to obtain or abstain from everything that you might obtain favor with the Lord. I want you to examine yourself and also examine God. See, the Ninevites, they were familiar with Yahweh. They were familiar with the God of Israel. And he said, listen, I want you to not taste anything of your fleshly desires that maybe you might taste the goodness and the favor of God. As the psalmist said, taste and see that the Lord is good. This is not a taste. We do not literally taste that the Lord is good, but rather that we come to an understanding. This word taste means to gain knowledge of or to come to a realization. Or it says taste and see. I want you to know that the Lord is good. And the king says, listen, I don't want you to taste food or water. Instead, I'm hoping we might taste and see the mercies of God. You say, preacher, is that really what God was saying? Or the king was saying to the people about God? Verse 9 clarifies it. The king says, who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not. He said, listen, I want us to not taste of our fleshly desires so that we may taste of God's mercy if God is willing. There was a call for self-examination. And repentance requires that we relinquish the power and the authority over our life but it also requires that we examine ourselves to see where we stand before God. Years ago when we were in the Philippines, and maybe I've shared this before, if so, y'all just act like you haven't heard it. We were in the Philippines and we would preach sometimes to thousands of students at one time in public schools. There was one particular high school in Manila that had 50,000 high school students in one school. They would have 25,000 would come the first half of the day, 25,000 the second half of the day, and every teacher, for all our school teachers here, get this, every teacher could have anywhere from two to 400 kids in their class at one time. And they had no problem with it because the students were there and they wanted to learn because if they didn't, they knew there was no chance for them to have any kind of future. They had to obtain an education if they wanted to have a job and make a living. And so they could teach that many kids and they were all eager to learn. And so it was a definitely a different environment. But we went there and we would go and we would preach sometimes to uh, students, a, a group of 1,000, 2,000, 4,000, sometimes 5,000 students at a time. They would bring them out and let us open the Bible and preach to them like I'm preaching to you this morning. And we would preach the gospel and we would do this right here. We would come to the invitation and we would say, now who would like to give their hearts to Jesus Christ this morning? And almost without, uh, without question, every time we came to that question, uh, Brother Jim, we would see hands going up by the thousands all across this, uh, the room where we were preaching to. Everybody wanted Jesus Christ. Everybody wanted hope of salvation. Everybody wanted that. But something began to bother me a little bit. I began to wonder how many of these are sincerely turning to God and how many just want the American's religion. 
And so we began to come to a place where I would ask this question. I would say, all right, now how many of you want to accept Jesus Christ this morning? And the thousands of hands would go up. And then I would ask this. The Philippines are the third largest Catholic nation in the world. They were vastly majority Catholic. And I would say, how many of you are willing to reject everything and reject your faith in Mary, the Pope, the priests, the nuns, religion, and put your faith solely in Jesus Christ and Him alone? And as thousands of hands went up, thousands of hands would go down. See, we want Jesus Christ as long as we can have him in our own traditions. We want Jesus Christ as long as we can have him and still live our life however we want to and still appease our flesh and our own ideologies. But when we have to surrender ourselves to Christ, it's a different story. We must examine ourselves and say, Lord, I repent, God, because I want you and you alone. And thirdly, we see here, reading from this passage of Scripture, that there was an act of faith. David, a two-year-old with leukemia, was taken by his mother, Deborah, to a Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston to see Dr. John Truman who specializes in treating children with cancer and various blood diseases. Dr. Truman's prognosis was devastating. He had a 50-50 chance. The countless clinic visits, the blood tests, the intravenous drugs, and the fear and pain. The mother's ordeal can be almost as bad as a child's because she must stand by unable to bear the pain herself. Yet David never cried in the waiting rooms, and although his friends in the clinic had to hurt him and stick needles in him, he hustled in ahead of his mother with a smile, sure of the welcome he always got. When he was there, David had to have a spinal tap, a painful procedure at any age. It was explained to him that because he was sick, Dr. Truman had to do something to make him better. If it hurts, remember it's because he loves you. Deborah, his mother said. The procedure was horrendous. It took three nurses to hold David still while he yelled and sobbed and struggled. When it was almost over, the tiny boy soaked in sweat and tears, looked up at the doctor and gasped. Thank you, Dr. Tooman, for my hurting. You see, we want Jesus Christ. But there are some times in life, the Bible says, we just need childlike faith. This little boy probably didn't understand what was going on. But he knew his mother told him that it was for his good. And so he said through the pain, thank you, doctor, for my hurting. The people of Nineveh, the Bible says, they covered themselves even before the king's decree. They were ready to repent. 
But there's something about this when we find they turned to God. They were saying, who can tell if God will have mercy on us? They did not know what the outcome would be. Matter of fact, I want to look at this. They turned to God even though they had just been prophesied against and told that destruction was coming. When, when the king ordered that they all cover themselves in sackcloth and fast and turn to God, they did so under certain condemnation. And yet they acted out in faith. It was through a limited faith, but it was through faith. They did not know if God, they said, who can tell if God will have mercy? Who, who knows, maybe he will, maybe it won't. Their faith was limited, but they acted out with what faith they had. In Mark chapter 9, verse number 24, we find the boy who is struggling and they come to Christ and said, immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Here we find the city of Nineveh. They have faith, but only a little faith. I'm glad that sometimes, even though a little faith might be all we have, a little faith is all it takes. Not because of our faith, and I am not saved because of my faith, but rather because of God's great faithfulness. They acted through limited faith, and they acted out in faith while judgment was still against them. Even though they had certain condemnation that was heading their direction, they still said, Lord, we're going to turn from you. The king said, stop your evil ways. Stop, let's, let's return from our wickedness. This is repentance. Many of so-called believers... say that they're saved. One of the most difficult and challenging aspects of evangelism here in the Deep South is no matter who you talk to, everybody just about claims to be a Christian. Whether they live like it or not, most people have went to church, identified with Christ at some point in their life, made some profession of faith. Yet the Bible says we must repent. We must, part of salvation, not only putting our faith, uh, believing in Christ, having faith in Him, but it is placing our faith upon Him and letting go ourselves, Saying, Lord, my life is in Your hands. He said, Pastor, what is the result of repentance? What was the end result? Verse number 10, the Bible says, And God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God repented of the evil that he had said he would do unto them and he did it not. Now I want to clarify that this word repent here that says God repented, um, there are uh, often we use repentance as that word of turning from sin. God did not turn from sin. God cannot sin. God did not repent in that word, in that way, but rather uh, he had compassion and he turned from his uh, judgment. 
And so God saw their works that they repented, that they were sorry for what they had done. They were turning to him, and God said, as they turn from their evil, I'm going to turn from the destruction I was going to do. First, God had compassion. God said, listen, I will not destroy you. And so God displayed compassion because of their repentance. Not only that, but God also, he displayed mercy. He said, listen, I'm going to not only not destroy you, but I'm going to give liberty to you. I'm going to hear you in your repentance. Today, I want you to know that I don't know where you're coming from. I don't know your background or your story. But I do know that it is of the utmost importance in your life that there is a point in a time in your life uh, where you say, I know that I have turned my life over to God. I have let go of the reins of my life. I have got off the seat and said, God, I give my life to you. Lord, I'm placing my life in your hands. God, you may sit upon the throne of my heart. Maybe you're here and I do not want to cause doubt in anyone's heart. If you're saved, we ought to hold fast to that hope. But maybe you're here and you say, preacher, uh, I remember when I was a young child, someone told me that I went to church and prayed and I said some prayer and, and so I think I'm saved. I've, I'm somebody, my parents told me I got saved as a young kid, but I don't remember. You've made a profession, but there has never been a time in your life where you truly came to God in repentance. I want you to know that without repentance, there is no salvation. And, and so my, this morning, I, I don't come to this to, to, to judge, but I want to give you hope that if we come to Christ, if we open up our heart and pour our heart out to him, we can know that we have forgiveness. We can know that we have salvation. I don't have to wonder if I'm dying, when I die, if I'm going to heaven. I can have complete assurance because Jesus Christ is the ruler. He is the Lord of my life. And he'll be the same for you if you put your faith in him this morning. Do you know that you're going to heaven? I can't answer that. Only you and God know. But this morning, do you have that assurance? Have you ever came to Christ in repentance and said, Lord, I recognize that I'm a sinner and that my sin has condemned me to hell? Have you ever came to a place where you could admit that to God and say, Lord, I'm unworthy. Lord, I know where I'm headed. But God, I believe that you are who you claim to be. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. And Lord, I place my faith in what you did on Calvary. Lord, take my life. I give myself to you. This morning, if you've not done that, I pray that today would be the day that you give your life to Christ.